Well, in the history uh, of sort of, of, of American sport, um, major American sport, 2016 was a very big year. And if you would step with me back into 2016, some of the things that happened, two things I want to highlight. I want to highlight two significant homecomings that occurred in 2016 that um, were really new and exciting and historical in what happened. In um, the earlier part of 2016, uh, let's say late spring, early summer, there was a homecoming in the state of Ohio for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And if you know that story, you know that for the first time in, I don't even know how many years it was, the Cleveland Cavaliers brought a championship, the NBA, National Basketball Association Championship, back to Cleveland. And Cleveland, historically, is a city that has not won championships over the last 50 years in any sport, football or, or baseball or um, basketball. And it was such a big, big deal that if, if you remember the image, of LeBron James, the captain and arguably, you know, one of the, the best players, certainly in the NBA, if not history, uh, he had the championship trophy in his hand for the first time, and he said, Cleveland, this is for you. It was a big deal when the, the, the whole team went back to Cleveland, big parade and speeches and everything, and the whole city turned out to celebrate this homecoming of their champions. But there was a bigger homecoming in 2016. Does anybody know the name of the team that came home? Chicago Cubs. Who here is a Chicago native and a Chicago Cub fan? Yeah, awesome, Pam. God be praised. God be praised so we stop hearing about it. The Chicago Cubs, for the first time, I think it was the year after Jesus ascended to heaven that they won their last baseball championship. They won the World Series and they brought a world championship back to the city of Chicago. And if you remember that time, it was uh, October, I think in November of last year, there's a park in Chicago called Millennium Park. It's this huge several hundred acre park. And there were millions of people who came for the celebration. In fact, so many came from not just Chicago. There were people who journeyed from all over the place just to be at the celebration because it was such a big deal. And not only were they celebrating this, this huge thing that had happened for the first time in forever, they were also anticipating that now that the curse is broken, because it was called the curse of the Cubs, the curse is broken. Maybe there's better things Ahead. In our text this morning, we have a homecoming that is in some ways not dissimilar from the homecomings of those teams. In some ways, it's dramatically different. But it's the homecoming of uh, Jesus to Jerusalem. And in this story, we have a group of people who are celebrating not just what is, but also the celebration here is much more a celebration of anticipation. It's what is to come. What the coming of Jesus and the parade that begins in the Mount of Olives come into the western gate of the temple, what that parade represents, not just for now, but then also for the future. And as we dig into the text, we understand that the people that day really didn't grasp, really didn't understand all that was going on. And perhaps maybe we don't either. The first three verses 
of Mark chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. Now, a little bit of geography. First of all, where Bethphage and Bethany are in relation to the temple, to Jerusalem, and that whole lay of land. Maybe you've seen pictures of people who will pose and then in the background will have what is called the Dome of the Rock, which is that golden dome. It's on the Temple Mount. Maybe you've seen pictures of people like that. Um, I, Kristen and I actually have one of those pictures because we've been to this spot. It's a distance on the Mount of Olives. Those pictures are taken on the Mount of Olives, only a distance of, of really less than a mile from the Temple Mount. So we're not talking about a huge distance. The parade from its beginning to its end is not a long one. We're talking about maybe half hour, 45 minutes at the most that it took for the triumphal entry itself to happen. And this Kidron Valley where, where we talk about, it's, it's actually, it's a pretty deep valley for the distance that it goes, and you go down into it. And then as you come up, right on the big, uh, right on the hill, as you come up towards Jerusalem is the Temple Mount itself. It's right there, and you proceed through the Western Gate, and that's where Jesus and the disciples and the procession went that day, was through the Western Gate. And that Western Gate is important, and we'll talk more about that in the week to come on why that is important. We also get this image of the, 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 uh, the donkey, right? And we, we heard from the other gospel reading that we heard one of our kids read this morning that it was uh, a donkey that was written. Here we hear it's a colt, and that word colt can actually refer to simply uh, um, a juvenile of either a donkey, a horse, or any number of different types of animals of that nature. It's a donkey here. We know it's a donkey not just because of how the text describes it, but also because of what a donkey means. For us, we hear donkey and we think, you know, lazy, stubborn. We can think any number of things. We think of when we go up into the, the, the dump up at Redlands Dump, you go up to the dump and you see the burrows and all the things that are up there and you think, you know, sort of, you know, dumb animals, not that intelligent. Actually, in the time of Jesus, donkeys represent royalty. If you went anywhere as a royal, as a king, as a queen, you went on a donkey because it was a symbol of your power. We may instead, as we often have over the course of history, put someone on a, like a, a, a massive white stallion, the source of power or a symbol of power, but here in the time of Jesus, it's a donkey. So it's important that he does ride in on a donkey into Jerusalem. And what we also need to understand is who is there. I don't know about you, but my image of this whole triumphal entry thing is that Jesus and his disciples get to Bethany and Bethphage. Jesus goes, uh, sends his disciples to get the donkey. They bring it back. He climbs on. They put their cloaks down, and it starts to go. And as it happens, it's just like a spontaneous parade and shouts from all these people. It's not really what happened here. And we know that because if you read in chapter 10 of Mark, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem not on his own. 
He's coming with a group of pilgrims. He's coming with a group of people. Remember, this is Passover week. Passover week is the week that you make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Jericho Road is one of those important roads. So he's probably journeying into Jerusalem with hundreds, if not thousands of people. But they're not just hundreds of thousands of strangers. These are actually people who know who Jesus is. Why? Because when they were in Jericho, we read previously in Mark chapter 10, there had been the show. Remember the show? The power of Jesus. There had been things, miracles that Jesus had performed, teachings that he had done, which had impacted people and crowds had gathered. And so all these people who are making pilgrimage to Jerusalem are people who have heard the story of Jesus, witnessed the show and the power that he has, and are coming to Bethany and Bethphage already ready and primed to give this guy a position of authority and power. They're excited about his coming. It's almost like you can imagine there were little kids, maybe little 10, 12-year-olds. I imagine little Michael or my son Troy running ahead and giving the word to the next town, the next group of people. The Lord is coming. The King is coming. And so by the time Jesus even gets to the Mount of Olives, already Jerusalem is primed. The pump is primed for this celebration, spontaneous celebration of the Lordship of God. This crowd is gathered and Jesus is even gathering with this crowd as he goes. And the story continues in verse 4. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway as they untied it. Some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And the importance of this text to this story is, again, Jesus is affirming who he is. He's not just king, but what has he done here? He's made prophecy. Made the prophecy that there would be a cult in the village ahead. And guess what? There's a cult in the village ahead that he can take. And if he said those words and they come true, that's the test to know whether a prophet is real. All right, that's, and that's actually important because remember who Jesus says that he is as he begins this whole journey towards Jerusalem. Remember at the Mount of Transfiguration? Right after the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples, the three, Peter, James, and John, have a discussion. Who are they having the discussion about? They're having discussion about who Jesus is in relation to Elijah. And Jesus is saying to them, I am Elijah. I am the prophet. I am fulfilling being the new Elijah, the new prophet. And here at the beginning of the triumphal entry story, he's affirming that by right away saying, I make prophecy and you know I'm a true prophet because my prophecy is real and it comes true. So now the procession begins and these things begin to happen. First of all, the disciples and others throw their cloaks on top of the donkey, a place for Jesus to ride. And then they, they also go out in the fields and they grab the branches like we saw our children holding, and they throw that down. But then they do this other thing. And you can almost imagine, you wonder sort of, who was the first person to do this other thing? This other thing that, that actually has some pretty strong symbolism. 
take off their cloak and throw it on the ground in front of the donkey. And why is that important? Turn in your scriptures, please, with me. 2 Kings, Old Testament, chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. Why is this throwing of cloaks on the ground important? We're actually going to begin at verse 6. Jehu is a man in Israel, and he is going to take on a very important job, very important role. Here's how we find out, we find out here how he got it. Jehu got up and went into the house. And then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anoint you, now listen to these words, the next couple sentences pretty closely. I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and ran, which is a great way if you're a prophet to make your prophecy. You say it, tough thing, bail, just out of there. He did. When Jehu went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked him, is everything all right? Why did this maniac come to you? You know the man and the sort of things he says. Jehu replied, that's not true. They said, tell us. Jehu said, here's what he told me. This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. So they took, quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. They blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. On the day of Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem, the Israelites are living into their history. The Jews are living into their history. And they're living into what happens, what you do when a king is anointed. By taking off your cloak and allowing the king or the animal it's on, the symbol of royalty, the donkey, to walk upon that, they are saying, we are submitting ourselves to your rule. You are our king. We are below you. But not only are they doing that, living into the symbolism, they're also making the request that Jehu was called to fulfill. Did you hear that? said Ahab would be destroyed, Jezebel would be laid out, the, the slaves shall be made free, there shall be new life in Israel because of the king Jehu, and now Jesus, we ask you, Hosanna, save us, be the king, be like Jehu, be like the kings that God, God has called to save Israel, come and save us from the oppression, oppression of Rome, oppression of the legalism of the temple religion of Judaism, a, 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 a oppression of anything that has come and taken us away from who we really are as your people, your chosen people here in this part of the world. We were once a great power, but we are no longer. Bring us back to that, oh Jesus. Hosanna, save us. Which is really interesting that they would do that. Because Israel actually doesn't have the best history with kings, do they? 
If you know the story, you know how it begins, the whole royal line, right? Israel comes to the prophet and they say to the prophet, we want a king. They had had no kings. They had had leaders. They'd had Moses. They'd had Joshua when they were brought into the promised land. And then we have the whole season of judges, judges who were called and raised up by God when people had done what was right in their own eyes. And God had put his people under oppression. Come save us. And the judges have done that. So now they want a king. Give us a king to rule over us, O oh God. God doesn't want them to have a king. But he says, okay. So who does he give him? Who does he give him? Saul. How does that go? Thumbs up? Not so much. Bad deal. In fact, they begin to ask God, free us from the oppression of King Saul. And, Jesus, and God says, okay. So give him a new king. Who's the next king? David. And David does pretty good, right? I mean, man after God's own heart, does a lot of good things. And then we get the golden age of Israel. We get Solomon. We get his wisdom. We get his riches. We get gold. We get all the, the temple being built. We get the palace of Solomon. We get this powerful, powerful nation that is at peace with all of its neighbors. And it's, it's a geopolitical power, geopolitical, um, you know, stronghold in the world. And after Solomon, Israel continues to go up, right? Not so much. You got some kings do pretty good. They worship God. They're just to the people. And then there's others who not so much. They oppress the people. They reject God. And there's all this, this. And now we're even to the time of Herod. How's Herod done? Well, we know that part of Herod's line, when Jesus was born, decided to kill a whole bunch of kids, right? So for the people to ask for a new king, it's like, have you forgotten are you crazy? Why would you want that thing? They should have known better. And Jesus, even in his action in the verses following, we begin to see that he's trying to give them something dramatically different. Verses 9 and 10. Those who went ahead and those who followed, see you have those little boys who are going ahead given the word that Jesus is coming. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, or in the original language, Hoshana. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They're looking for the kingdom of David. Give us the golden age. Give us when we were a power. Give us a geopolitical voice. Give us the Jews' self-rule. They're not wanting the procession of Jesus to end at the temple. They're not wanting Jesus' rule to come to be one of slavery and submission. Remember, that's what he said to the disciples last, last week during the message. He, they don't want that. No, don't stop at the temple. You can look around for a minute, Jesus, but then go to the palace. Keep going. Go to the throne room of Herod. Kick Herod out 
and then come take your place as the great ruler who will return us to the kingdom of King David and Solomon, the golden age of Israel. They are looking for a geopolitical Messiah. They want the they want the Christian nation. Sound familiar? That sound familiar? It's interesting because in some ways, don't we live into that? Isn't that during our political cycles, election cycles, what we're calling for? Give us a return to the Christian nation. Give us a, a, a leader who lives into the obedience of God so that in the geopolitical halls, in the, in the places of law, that, that, that a Christian or a man of God is the one who is enacting, you know, the, in some senses, the law of God. It's interesting. This is what was challenging for me as I thought about this text. The people are living into that sort of idea of a kingdom. And we do too. And oftentimes I do too. But that's not what Jesus did. It's not the sort of kingdom that he was trying to enact. It was not, his journey did not end in the throne room of Herod. It ended in the place of execution. And who put him there? The geopolitical power. And Jesus, Jesus submitted himself to that. But his victory ultimately, his kingship ultimately, didn't look like it carried a sword. It, its throne was not of gold, it was of thorns. His spear was not held up. It was in his side. The power of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ as we see it is radically different than this image of a geopolitical authority of God in those halls of power. It is instead a, 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 almost this revolution that slowly moves its way. Begins at the very beginning with Instead of the big confrontation, it begins with a movement of love and a movement of grace, a movement of slavery and submission of God in Jesus Christ to us. Christ is so much of a servant that he dies on the cross. That's the kingdom of God that we're living into here. And then we get this most interesting of verses, and you'll probably miss it. Let's read it together. It's verse 11. Listen to this verse. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Is anyone else really struck by that verse? Because you've had this parade of hundreds of thousands. You've had this parade of all these people shouting, Hosanna, all these 
this parade of people waving branches and putting cloaks down. And you can imagine that there was a person, there was a person in Jericho who started already the pilgrimage to Jerusalem with Jesus and saw the power and the authority of God, had seen Jesus perform miracles, had seen the beginning of this whole procession with Jesus calling to his disciples, go get me the colt, go bring the donkey. The donkey comes, they put down the cloak and this person is thinking, okay, what happens when we get to Jerusalem? How's this thing going to end? It's almost like the music is building. It's like one of those movie things where you see the, the hero on the last little bit of the journey. Maybe they're entering into the castle and coming up to the throne room with a person that they have to vanquish is or whatever that sort of journey looks like. It's the music is building, the music is building and Jesus walks into the temple and you can almost imagine that on the walls of, of the temple that there's Roman soldiers who are thinking, what's going to happen next? And the doorways over here of the Solomon's colonnade, that there are the, the teachers of the law and the temple rulers and the Sadducees who are gathered together and whispering among themselves with their high hats and great robes. And they're like, oh no, what happens now that Jesus has come? He's brought hundreds. He's brought thousands of people into the temple. What in the world is going to happen next? And you, Jesus comes in and it's almost like, da, 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 da. Very good place. Let's go. That's what happens. That's exactly what Jesus does. He looks around and says, It's late. I'm a little hungry. Let's go get dinner. Now, if you're that person who journeyed from Jericho, what are you thinking? Is that it? What, what about you and Herod? You're not even at least going to yell at them a little bit? What about, them, what about the temple rulers? Aren't you going to at least have some more of that conversation that we heard before? Oh, that's to come. That'll happen. We, we see it ahead in the chapters of Scripture. But that's to come. But not today. Even though we've had this big growth, this big sort of preparation for the confrontation. And I wonder, in that moment, if the seeds are sown, for some, I don't think all, I think it's a very different group of people who are saying Hoshana, Hosanna today, than the same people later on on Friday. But I wonder if it plants the seed for one person who today says Hoshana on Friday to say, Crucify him. He disappointed me. I expected power. I wanted to see authority. I wanted to see a king who would change things. I wanted to be out of slavery and bondage and taxation and violence at the hands of soldiers who are not from here. And all this guy did was walk into this place where he could have made it happen. And he looked around and he took his group and he went home. That's not the king, kind of king that I want. I want one who has the power that I expect and gives me the kingdom 
the kingdom that I want to have. It's a crucifying. I wonder if that was part of what happened here. And in that moment, instead of the great throne room of Herod being that place that shows the glory of God in the people's minds, that the shroud begins to part. And instead of the power of a sword, we see instead the power of an object of execution. Instead of utterances that come with authority and power, send troops, fight the Romans, stop the taxation. Instead of those sorts of words, it becomes, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Instead of all the symbols of geopolitical power and authority that we sometimes wish would be the kingdom of God because it would make the world what we think to be a better place. It comes in the whispers of it is finished. And beginning in that moment of it is finished, Love and grace begin to build. Instead of the line of confrontation where the big conflict happens and is resolved and we know what happens next, it begins with one movement, the movement of grace of the cross. And that movement of grace begins and it begins to impact the women who go to the tomb on Sunday morning. And then it begins to impact the disciples who they tell the story to. And it begins to impact the next group who the disciples tell the story to. And it grows up into Pentecost where all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes. And then thousands are saved because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And slowly the kingdom of God grows. And slowly it revolutionizes the world. It just doesn't do it in the way that the people who shouted Hoshana expected. And maybe it doesn't come in the way that we expect either. And so for us, as we go through this Passion Week, this week that leads up to Good Friday and Easter, for us to consider how the kingdom of God manifests itself. Well, we know from last week's message, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is us being slaves and servants to one another. Submitting our needs, submitting our wants, submitting our desires, submitting our dreams to one another and putting others before ourselves as we submit to God. It's the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God is a kingdom of God of love and for us to live into that this week and includes those people in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your families, wherever you might be, who are hard to love. Those people that make your skin crawl in different moments because of things they say, things they do. Those people, and you know who they are, you can name them, you can write them down on that piece of paper right now if you wanted to. To love them, show them grace. To speak the whisper of the cross so that that whisper of the cross might grow. Because it is growing, folks. It's growing and it continues to grow. It grew from that moment of that day when, the, when Jesus himself said, it is finished and it grows even to today. It will grow to the point that a trumpet sounds. And when that trumpet sounds, we will see it in all its glory. And we can be a part of that glory that is to come even today as we live into love and grace. And friends, this week, this week is one of those weeks when the pump is primed. 
There are more people who are going to come to church on Easter Sunday than any other week, which is great. I'm really glad that people come to church. I hope we have a big crowd here. Awesome. That's good. It's good. You know what's better? It's a whole lot better if you, before they come, and then after they come, have that conversation of love and grace, the still small voice of the grace and the love of Jesus Christ in their lives. Because what I say on Sunday morning, it may be powerful. Who knows what God is going to do? I fully trust that God can use what it is that we do here next Sunday morning and Easter Sunday to transform lives. But you know who does it a whole lot better than I do? You. You as you live into the kingdom of God, the real kingdom, not this powerful geopolitical construct that we have this idea that's a Christian nation or a Christian power or it's the love and the grace of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit has given you that dwells within you that speaks out through you when you are willing to be used. That's the kingdom of God. Live into that this week. Live into that in the weeks ahead. And see what sort of growth the kingdom of God might have in your life. Let's pray. Living God, hope of the world in Jesus Christ, you have shown, your, shown us what your kingdom looks like, and it looks significantly and radically different than oftentimes our image of it is. We pray, Lord, that we might submit our view, our idea, our thought to yours. We might live into the truth that your kingdom is a kingdom of love and grace, of slavery and submission to others. That it is a kingdom in which we are less, you are more. It is a kingdom where instead of simply words of confrontation, words where we say what's on our mind or say what we think, we speak truth and we speak it in love in such a way that another's heart might be transformed and moved more closely to you. Father, this is hard. It's hard stuff because it is a part of the work of transformation, transformation of hearts and minds, and we know, Lord, that you are the only one who can do that. We can't do it ourselves. It is only you. We ask, Lord, if it be your will, that you use us. We are willing We are willing. Use us to bring your kingdom. Use us, O King. We drop our cloak on the ground to you. You are greater than we are. Use us to do your will. We pray these things in Christ. Amen.